Hello and welcome to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm your host, Antonio Barbera, and I'm joined once again for our Leaders Talk series by U.S. News Executive Chairman Eric Gertler as he shares two interviews he conducted while at the World Economic Forum Conference in Davos, Switzerland. This is part four of our five-part series, so please check our previous episodes for more excellent Leaders Talk interviews. Eric, thank you for joining me. It's wonderful to join you. We're going to start this episode with an interview you did with Omar Abish, Group Chief Executive, Communications, Media, and Technology at Accenture. Now, throughout this interview and others that you've done as part of this series, a word that comes up often is disruption. Can you briefly explain for the listener how this word is being used in the context of business and leadership and what major disruptors are impacting business today? Thank you. I loved our discussion around disruption here. And Omar thinks very deeply about what is going on with disruption and makes it very clear that every single industry today is being disrupted and that every business has an old, a now, and a new. And as a leader, you need to be thinking about this disruption. And he defines disruption as new innovation meeting existing business models. So that confluence between all of the new innovation, uh, the new technology, with the current model that a company or an industry has, and how do you figure out on a go-forward basis? And, and how does a leader think about that and do it faster and better and cheaper in terms of integrating the new technology, but also doing that while running into the existing business model? He has really, really uh, provocative thoughts about, about disruption, and I think our readers will enjoy listening to how he thinks about disruption. We're going to get to the interview in just a second, but can you uh, sort of help set up what it's about? Well, in, in terms of leadership, and we certainly uh, spent a good amount of time talking about leadership, in his view, irrespective of 21st century, 20th century, there are leadership traits that stand the test of time. And when they look for leaders and they help some of their client companies, um, they're looking for leaders that have the ability to be both strategic and visionary, but then also have the skills to operate institutions with great detail. And also leaders that uh, can be tough when you're dealing with uh, difficult situations or negotiations, ethical challenges, but also being soft and creative in terms of creating an environment where people feel welcome and, and inclusive. And those leadership challenges, those balances, that tension, I thought were really interesting in terms of finding the right leaders for, uh, for 21st century success. Great. Thank you. So you will now hear Eric's conversation from Davos with Omar Abish, Group Chief Executive, Communications, Media, and Technology at Accenture. So let's uh, jump right into a topic that everybody is thinking about here. As the Chinese proverb says, we are living in interesting times. We are living in a world of disruption on many levels. Technology, globalization, uh, competition for talent. How do you think about managing in this great world of disruption? Firstly, let me begin by saying what I think disruption is. And my very simple way of explaining it is disruption is new innovation meeting existing business models. Um, so someone's figured out how to do something better, faster, cheaper with modern innovation. 
and then they run into an existing way of doing things which sometimes has been so perfected for doing it that way that it becomes inflexible. And so we see disruption and that can happen in a business setting or beyond. In your industry, in communications, in media and certainly technology, there's been huge amounts of disruption. So how do you manage in particular in your industry? Well, so actually in our industries, we have many clients who are major disruptors themselves. So for example, the big digital platform companies, uh, and then companies who perhaps have felt the heat of disruption, for example, some of the media companies. Uh, and the way I help my clients think about this is to say, look, every business has an old, a now, and a new. And the question is, is how can I get the investment dollars, the management resource, the people allocation right between the old, the now, and the new in time? And, and that's the heart of how you manage a disruption wave. So those, those are certainly challenging business decisions in trying to think to manage, you know, as that disruption is going on. So from the leaders that you've worked with, how do you see them face those challenges in terms of either trying to turn their companies around or trying to manage sort of the old moving to the, to the new? Um, the... I mean, obviously the answer varies by company and by industry. Uh, and what we find today is that every single industry, and I really mean every single industry because we have analyzed this to death, is open to being disrupted. Yeah. But those who are on the more, the front end of disruption, so for example, you know, you mentioned high-tech media, but also let's say banking, are more wise to the issues arising from disruption. So they're spending a lot more effort to say, okay, we need to grab hold of this thing called digital, these things called artificial intelligence, and figure out how to apply that innovation inside our business so we can ride the wave of disruption rather than being overturned by it. Um, but even super asset intensive industries, so industrial companies, oil and gas companies, utilities, mm. are also seeing a sea change in their sectors. And they're also beginning to grapple and say, hmm, uh, if I'm a car manufacturer, I've got to grab decarbonization and electrif electrification mm. and autonomous. Uh, if I'm uh, a utility company, I need to think about solar power embedded in the grid and how that changes the dynamics of the industry. So all of these companies are looking at these issues today. Yeah. And at the same time, you've got boards looking at, at their leaders, at their chief executives and wondering, do they have what it takes to manage that transition or not? So from your vantage point, what are some of the traits that have allowed some of these leaders to succeed as they've gone through that disruption? Yeah. Um, let me break that into two bits. I think okay. there are a couple of traits that I would say stand the test of time, irrespective right. of the era. And I think that the best boards look for a big span in a leader, so in other words, breadth. So in other words, the ability to be really strategic and visionary and then write down detailed operational execution when necessary, right. or to be hard and tough in uh, dealing with a difficult ethical challenge or a commercial negotiation, but also to be really soft and creative in terms of creating a very inclusive environment. Mm -hmm. That span, I think, is always a prerequisite for a great leader. What I'm seeing a little bit more on the content side nowadays, though, is um, while board members have always been amazing financial people, that's still required, but now actually boards really like people with a good technology backdrop. So mm -hmm. they understand that in the past, technology was an enabler. Today, te technology is a propeller. Yeah. You actually have to be good at it, no matter what your business, if you're going to be successful. So in the many technology companies that you work with, there is often, very often the case, where you've got a young leader. Uh, a leader who understands the technology and is a visionary, but may not have that same breadth in terms of operational experience, or even just years of managing things. What have you seen in those situations and how have those companies cope with those types of leaders? I mean, so it's not a secret in the startup community. Sometimes people joke about hiring adult supervision. Right. Uh, and so there are some very notable examples, famous people who have come in with 
uh, let's say, more business savvy, more commercial experience than the, the really creative genius founders. Uh, and so that's uh, one way in which companies deal with that. Often as companies start to scale out and move from the super entrepreneurial explosive growth stage to a more maturing scaling out stage, again, they're looking for different skills in the mix. So people who think about things like compliance or uh, treatment of customer data or ethics. Uh, and so again, we've seen uh, new roles emerging in companies like chief ethics officer to make people think about uh, how modern innovation affects not just the business, but also the customers and the wider society and these companies' roles in that. Right. Let's also talk about purpose-driven leadership and also the notion of corporate social responsibility. I think there are many companies that have been engaged in that for, for many years. It seems, though, that that has drawn much more attention in, in the last number of years. Are there companies and leaders that you've seen that have adapted that really well? Um, how has that helped some of these companies grow? You know, one, one example that, um, that we have seen in, in talking to a number of leaders is that purpose-driven leadership is really important to recruit young talent today who really want it. But I welcome you know, your thoughts on the topic. Um, so what I'm going to say may be a bit controversial. Yeah. I, I mean, when people started talking about purpose-driven uh, leadership a few years ago, I kind of laughed. I was like, as opposed to what? Um, I mean, I don't know who wants to work for a purposeless company. Right. Uh, and uh, again, when you talk about co uh, corporate social responsibility, even though you know, for a very long time people have, have preached the mantra of shareholder value, of course, companies have to be profitable, otherwise they're going to die. Right. But every company needs a license to operate that it gets from its customers and its community and its society. And so if you're not a good corporate citizen, things go wrong for you. And there are plenty of examples of that in the mm -hmm. past. So for me, um, any progressive leader is thinking hard about, actually, yes, we pursue the profit motive, but we keep re-earning the right to mm -hmm. have a license to operate from our customers and our stakeholders. Uh, and in doing that, we can attract the most talented people, because you said millennials yeah. and Gen Zs really do care about this, uh, but also uh, keep ourselves on the right side of things. If something goes wrong, you know, we'll have more people mm -hmm. on our side. And so that, for me, is just good business. Yeah. We have seen at US News, where we released our uh, most recent list of, of best countries, one of the interesting points that, that we saw is that citizens and consumers have greater trust in business leaders. And they also want business leaders to get involved in social issues, mm. which you know, perhaps was not the case 40 years ago. One example how leadership has changed from the 20th century to 21st century. I wonder if you have other thoughts on how you've seen the norms of leadership changing over the many years. Yeah, I mean, so a couple of thoughts. And you know, we're here in, in Davos today uh, where actually one of the themes that's coming out is in absence of political leadership on many, many societal issues, people in fact do expect CEOs to be more activist and more uh, societally conscious themselves and be willing to speak up. Uh, now obviously you should probably only speak up in an area where your brand has legitimacy, where it has relevance to your business, otherwise, you know, why are you there? Um, but I think we s that is one of the big changes we've seen. And a second thing that I think is relevant is, uh, in the late 90s, for example, people would make the cover of Fortune or Forbes magazine saying, hey, I cut tons of cost. And what the, that was a euphemism for, I fired 10,000 people. Um, I'm saying to my clients today, that won't make you a hero going forward. Actually, in an era of technology-fueled disruption, businesses have a real accountability around topics like reskilling. Right. And so what we'll see today increasingly is uh, instead of traditional unions and collective bargaining around topics like wages, we'll see negotiations around topics like reskilling. Yeah. How, how, how will a company reinvest in its workforce to help make them fit yeah. for the future as well? So you yourself, you're uh, an executive, chief executive, you run your group. 
what are some of the challenges that, that you face as a leader um, at Accenture, and what are some of the challenges that Accenture is facing today in this 21st century workplace? So I, I guess probably the one thing I think about is, and this is not news, is there's never enough hours in the day yeah. to cover the range of issues that you get to see. Uh, so sometimes uh, the issues obviously are related to how the workforce feel and you know what they need. In an era of uh, increasing complexity in the political landscape, so for example, uh, Accenture works a lot on helping companies take innovation, modern innovation in the form of technology and applied in their businesses, uh, we're seeing a huge digital fragmentation across the world with a wide range of laws and regulations around the control of data, privacy and cyber. Those generate uh, big areas that we have to focus on. Again, working with technology, the topic of cyber criminality is a, a huge deal. Again, something that we have to grapple with and take to the highest level in terms of how we pay attention to those topics. Uh, and then obviously our customers um, in facing the waves of disruption, trying to grapple with topics like digital and artificial intelligence, um, need help from a from a content and a professional point of view, but also in brand new arenas, like how do uh, I apply ethics in the design of new technology? And so it's just a sheer spectrum of topics yeah. that I think sometimes uh, keeps me thinking. And what about, you know, at Accenture and in your group, the competition for, for talent? How do you think about bringing on young talent? How do you think about diversity and inclusion? Uh, how do you keep competitive with, with your competitors? In Accenture, we're obsessed with creating an atmosphere of inclusion and an environment for inclusion. And we've studied it to death, and for many years, more than a decade. Uh, we're extraordinarily focused on diversity. And again, the reasons are because it's right, but also it's great business. Half the talent <laughs> is female. Uh, there are tons of talent in minority groups and, and other groups in society that need to just feel very comfortable and safe and included in work. And without that diversity, you can't possibly have the maximum innovation. And actually the argument that I make all the time with my clients is the only way you can survive as a company is to have maximum innovation. Mm. So for us it's a business imperative. How we do it, it ranges from things like um, measuring very detailed gender gap metrics that you know, in my particular unit, the, my, my leadership team put a proportion of their bonus against our achieving those metrics every year. Uh, and it's not mm. simply how many women do we have, for example, but how many were promoted how many achieve the certain rankings within their performance ratings that help them make sure that we're promoting and, and re recognizing the same percentage of women as we have in the population as, as the men. Right. Last question. We're even going to get more personal now. You know, you've had a varied and um, uh, exciting career, and you've had a chance to meet many uh, leaders, both in the private and public sector. Uh, who comes to mind as leaders that, that you admire and uh, who are leaders or individuals that have had a personal effect on the way you think and the way you lead? Well, let me pick on two characters. Yeah. So, so firstly, Satya Nadella at Microsoft. People will find this hard to remember, but a mere six years ago, people thought that that company was not cool. The best developers in Silicon Valley were not headed there. Uh, and people had said, yeah, that was a powerhouse in the, in the early, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, but no longer. Actually, there's been a massive turnaround in the performance of that company and a lot of that emanates directly from his competence and his leadership character. Uh, and the way he's led that turnaround is super impressive to me and I know many others. Uh, in terms of someone who's impacted me personally and directly, I'd like to give a shout out to our very recently standing down chairman and CEO, Pierre Nantel, who's been my best career mentor ever. He's an extremely thoughtful, trenchant, tough, demanding uh, French boss, uh, very intelligent, uh, extremely focused on doing the right thing, highly principled, uh, and 
as I said in a tweet uh, some months ago, um, given a choice of two alternatives, Pierre taught me over time that he, he always picked the harder choice and he went the route that most others would, would flake away from. Right. Well, great qualities for, for a leader. I want to thank you for uh, sitting with us, U.S. News and World Report at the World Economic Forum discussing 21st century leadership. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, today. Eric. Great. Our second interview, which we'll get to in just a few minutes, is with Steve Paliuka, co-chairman of Bain Capital and co-owner of the Boston Celtics. What was the focus of this conversation? Well, we talked about many things, but what comes to mind is here is uh, an individual, uh, a leader, and Steve is both the, uh, you know, the co-chairman of Bain and co-owner of the Boston Celtics. But he's someone who is very steeped in history, and he thinks deeply about, about history, and he thinks about how the world moves in cycles, and the cycle that we're in now, and how that requires an immediacy to things that, that we're doing. And that's important because he thinks about leadership and many of the traits as being consistent over time, but how do we apply or how do leaders apply those skills in, in different cycles? And going with, with that theme, I also liked the way he discussed the world leaders or leaders in general that, that he respects and the two that he had immense respect for were two leaders who truly went against the grain. You know, for example, someone like uh, the great boxer Muhammad Ali, who challenged the Vietnam War and the draft, and he was uh, widely criticized at the time, but then ended out on the right side of the politics and certainly went on to be one of the greatest sports uh, athletes of, of all time and also widely respected for many of, the, uh, many of the things that he said. And then also Nelson Mandela, who he also had immense respect for, and, and quite frankly, uh, how could you not have great respect for, for Nelson Mandela? But, but for him, it was again a man who believed so deeply in his beliefs, he's willing to go to prison for it, but ultimately all for the goal of freeing an entire nation. And I like that discussion that we had around history and how history works in cycle and how people live within their times. An interesting difference from Steve and some of the other leaders you've interviewed is his co-ownership of the professional sports franchise, the Boston Celtics. You'll reference that ownership in the interview as a community property, as any sports team will have a natural tie to its city. So I'm wondering if you got a sense that his ownership of a community property has given him a different perspective on leadership and on business building. Yeah, so this, this is where our interview was a, a little surprising. I thought that he would discuss different types of leadership given his work at Bain versus his work as part of the Boston Celtics, but he felt that it was more similar than, than different, that leadership is leadership, and whether you're running a, uh, a large private company or one that is really certainly still privately owned, but part of the community in terms of the Boston Celtics. And, and he referenced how in both cases, good leadership matters. And also in both cases, you need to uh, work within the community and give back. And you're just doing so a little bit differently. I thought that part of our discussion was uh, enjoyable and 
also somewhat surprising. Coming up next is Eric's interview from Davos with co-chairman of Bain Capital and co-owner of the Boston Celtics, Steve Pagliuca. So on, on a global level, there's also uh, two factors that are driving the world. There's capital that's driving the world, and there's also this competition for talent, both incre incredibly important. How do you think about both of those as, as a leader, and certainly from your vantage of running a large fund? That's a very you know, complex dynamic be, be, between capital and employment. If, if I step back, I, I'd say that we've gone through a period in the last 20, 30 years, which actually for the world has been a great period. Uh, about half a billion people or more have been lifted out of poverty. You've seen uh, China become a first world country. You've seen India with major advances all over the world because of the, the internet transportability communications. We've seen an uplifting of many populations. Right. So probably the most uplifting we've ever seen in the world. That's the good news. The bad news is that has caused dislocation in the Western countries, the already established economies. And those people have, have felt left out and left behind, which I think is part of, the, of why we have this, this turbulence. So I think we're, we're now in the next 20 years, we're going to have to have a rebalancing because of, of popular support and demand and, and just fairness for those people that got mm -hmm. left out of the technological revolution. Mm -hmm. The world is better off, but certain countries, certain people are not better off. So I'm hoping we're going towards rebalancing rather than retrenching, and, and that's where leadership comes in. We need great leaderships that will transcend that. Right. And, and, and so, so, for example, make a deal, figure out how, how we can benefit both sides with China to lift employment in both countries. Uh, make a deal on Brexit so, so that we have a smooth transition, because at the end of the day, this affects people. Right. From the private equity perspective, it also affects capital flows. Uh, where you want to put capital is where there's stability, a rule of law, and some semblance of normalcy. If you have policies jumping up and down, that scares capital away. Right. So that kind of dovetails both with the people aspect of it and the capital aspect of it. And, 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 and I'm hoping we're going to go, the world's going to go to rebalancing and not a retrenchment. You talked earlier about two important qualities of a leader, transparency and integrity. Uh, I think that those are, are, are two important qualities that transcend leadership of all time. But we've seen a change in leadership from 20th century to 21st century. One sense of top-down leadership to now sort of uh, a little bit more of a d democratized type of leadership. I wonder if you can talk about how you have seen leadership change over the last 20 or 30 years. You know, I don't know if leadership has changed, but, but I believe the world is in cycles. Right. And uh, different models, you know, work all over the world. Singapore is a democracy, but they have a very strong central government and, and, and a top-down leader. Uh, other countries, I India is a total democracy with lots of, Italy with lots of government changes. So, so the world goes in cycles. And uh, probably in crises like war, you know, people are looking for more top-down leadership because, you know, you don't have time to consult uh, the entire population to make a decision if, if, if someone is attacking your country. And in more stable times, you know, people are looking for stable leaders. So, so I, I think the leadership change, the quote leadership changes we've seen are more a function of the cycle that we're in, which I, which I just talked about. Right. So uh, people I, are reaching out because yeah. they feel left out. And, and they, 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 many, in many places, we've seen populist elections because they tend to, to go to a leader who says, I'm a strong leader right. and I'm going to make change because you haven't had change the last 20 years. That's happened in cycles, you know, William Jennings, Bryan, across the gold in the United States, Andrew Jackson. These were all populist leaders that were reacting to some issue, some economic issue of people being left out of the times. So you're in a unique situation. You're a leader of a private company, but you're also a leader in the community because of your ownership in a community property, the Boston Celtics. Not that it's 
not privately owned, but it's shared by the whole community. Do you see your role as a leader different in those two aspects, or is it really the same? I think they're more similar than different. Uh, you know, Bain Capital uh, is a partnership, and we have incredible partners. And one thing I love about Bain Capital is from, from, from when partners were very young at Bain Capital, including myself, all of us really earned our livings. We came from modest backgrounds. But from the early days, uh, Josh Beckenstein kind of led the way. Bain Capital partners were giving lots to charity. So we formed Bain Capital Children's Charities, Bain Capital Community Partnership. We've given out, just directly from that, over $50 million to, to different causes in the Boston area. And that's probably multiplied by over 10 by personal donations from the partners. So it's been a strong ethic, uh, not because it's led by me, it led by the whole culture of Bain and Company and Bain Capital because we feel like we're going to give back to the community. The Celtics, uh, that's a different story, but, but from the day one where, where we purchased the Celtics, uh, I purchased with the Grosbecks, the Celtics, and a, and a great ownership group, day one we recognized that really that's a community asset. Uh, people, especially in Boston, people live and die by the sports, and yeah. they're certainly living now with the Patriots going to the Super Bowl again for the third time in a row, and we've been very blessed. So it has been a virtuous cycle. And, and our city is fantastic because all the sports owners get along. We do multiple charity efforts together. Uh, the, the, the Patriots and the Red Sox and the Bruins helped put up a Bill Russell statue, which was a mm -hmm. civil rights statue as well as a basketball statue. We've helped all those other uh, organizations with causes. We founded something called the Boston Shamrock Foundation the first day we bought the team, and the whole ownership group put millions of dollars into it. And it's been one of the leading uh, you know, sports for philanthropy franchises because you can use that power of a brand like that to bring kids to, to do better in school. We have programs like Step Up Your Game to get them better in school. We have programs uh, that, that, that work with charities to give people housing, uh, Stop Abuse, MSPCC, uh, the Berkeley School of Music, Music Scholarships. And that Celtics, they all love the Celtics, and that Celtics is a great draw for them to reach their full potential. And we would think it would be a real waste. And, you know, and our, and our strategy in buying the Celtics was, you know, number one, you know, three problems. Number one, we had to try to build a championship team, really hard to do. Uh, had a five-year plan to do that. Fortunately, we won a championship in the fifth year. Number two, improve the fan experience. When we bought the club, they didn't really have much in the way of communications or, or internet, and a lot of things didn't even exist, Facebook. So we've got a great staff that's put all that together. And then point three was really turbocharged giving back to the community. The first two are really hard to do. The first one is the hardest, but the third one, you can win every year. So right. there's no shortage. And our players now have bought into this. We have the most hours, community hours, of, of any franchise. They, they use, since, since it's infectious, if the owners do it, the coaches do it, the players do it, the community loves it. So now they all, they're, they're begging for opportunities to go out in the community. Mm -hmm. We have to hold them back. Uh, so it's a great situation at the Celtics, and I'm, I'm very proud of what the players have done and, and the ownership group has done. Well, living in Boston and seeing how the sports teams are doing, you're, you know, it's, high, it's high standard in, in, in Boston. Um, and, and I think to your point, uh, Boston's getting, and Boston fans are getting to the point where they're expecting a championship every year. Makes leading a little bit more difficult. You talk about engaging your audience. What other challenges do you have when you're leading an organization like that, that people all feel part of it? Well, I think our, our CEO and, and, and uh, co-owner Rick, Rick Grosbeck has done a fantastic job of, uh, you know, the whole ownership group has brought back all the other players. Uh, we have all these community events. Mm -hmm. And the great thing is we were able to turn the club around because we, we laid out this strategy and we had immediate fan support. So in many cities, the team hadn't won in 16 years when we had bought it. And, uh, and so many cities, the, the, the attendance plummets and you don't really have the capital to bring in new players. But when we bought the team immediately before we started winning, laying out the strategy, having people like Danny Ainge involved, the credibility, the credibility of the ownership group, the whole group, 
uh, out in the community. I mean, when we started, we were out there giving out tickets at gas stations, you know, to have people come to the games. So I want to ask you two related questions. In your career, you've had an opportunity to meet a lot of leaders. Who have you admired? And then on a personal level, who has um, guided and instilled in you the values that you have and has helped you in terms of your day-to-day life? That's a great question. Uh, my mother was a history teacher, so I, I was steeped in history from a very young age. And there are lots of leaders that I admire. I admire most of the leaders who were people who kind of went against the grain, uh, who were prescient knowing we should go a different, different direction. Uh, people like Muhammad Ali, who challenged the Vietnam War and the draft and who was pillared at the time, but now is kind of, is kind of was on the right side of that one. People like uh, Nelson Mandela, you know, who, who set free an entire nation and went to prison for it. So those kinds of people that laid everything out there when it wasn't the easy thing, wasn't the proper thing to do, or they'd go to prison, that is probably leadership from the core. And there, there are many, many uh, like that, including many of our presidents and, and war heroes. You know, on a personal level, uh, I would say my mother had a huge influence on me, both saying that the, the, the possibilities were unlimited. You know, my grandfather was a shoemaker, came over on the boat in 1922. Uh, that's why America's a great place. Uh, but when I grew up, you know, I was told I could, I could uh, accomplish anything. I could be uh, president of the United States. And, and uh, my mother always had a very optimistic view and supportive view. And, uh, and so uh, I think she kind of probably, if I think back, deeply affected you know, my trajectory mm-hmm. and my, my, my willingness to work and fulfill my potential coming from what we, we came from. It's, 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 it's amazing. It's, it's due to the family of my mother and, and just being in a great place like the United States. Well, she sounds like a great woman and, and a, a great story. Uh, thank you for sharing with us today your views on, on leadership. U.S. News and World Report at the World Economic Forum talking about 21st century leadership with Steve Paluka of Bain Capital. Thank you so much. Thanks thank very you. much, Eric. Appreciate it. Right. Appreciate it. Thank you. Eric, thank you for sharing these conversations from the World Economic Forum Conference in Davos, which are both insightful and useful for 21st century leaders. Hope to have you on again sometime soon. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. Please subscribe to our podcast, rate it, comment on it, And if you have money questions related to personal finance, investing, real estate, or careers that you'd like answered on future shows, please email wealthofknowledge at usnews.com. We'll review your emails, and we'll try to answer a few on the next episode. Additionally, if you'd like to see video versions of these and more Leaders Talk interviews, please visit usnews.com slash news slash leaders. Thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm Antonio Barbera. We'll see you next time with the final episode in the Leaders Talk series.